1: To all of us, join Hercules and Victus and crew as they seek answers to these and other timeless questions and serve Mount Olympus by safeguarding the path of mystic ascension. Welcome to the Pride of Olympus.
2: and welcome to Pride of Olympus. I'm Hercules Invictus, and I'm greatly honored to have just returned from Tenafly's Holiday Pride, where I'm the Grand Marshal, and uh, I read a blessing upon uh, my townsmen. I shared it uh, with my online audience on Facebook, and now I'll quickly share it here before we begin tonight's programming. I call upon heaven and the benevolent powers that shaped us in the dawn of time and guide us still to bless this place, its people, and all that they hold dear. May we all be blessed with optimal wellness, with abundance and prosperity, with love and peace, with joy and fulfillment. In the name of the highest, I dedicate myself toward this becoming so. And from the altar high atop Mount Olympus, my soul's true home, I sound the horn of summoning, and welcome all who heed the call. And with that, I will introduce our first show for tonight. Nick Curto presents a Disclosure Network. Uh, we have a special extended edition tonight. And the host is, of course, the legendary Nick Curto. And his guest is Jennifer Stein. And their topic is Gobekli Tepke. I hope I'm pronouncing that uh, uh, correctly. Greetings and welcome, Nick.
3: Oh, thank you so much, Hercules, and congratulations on on that honor that was bestowed upon you today. That's wonderful, and uh, may I say, deserved.
2: And also, thank you.
3: I would love to get a, a copy of that beautiful uh, prayer that you said. Is there possible you could email me that? I would love to have that.
2: Yes, I I, I will email it to you and the. Uh, um newspaper reporter who interviewed me said she wanted to include it in the uh, article, too. So uh, uh, the, the blessing is getting spread around. Thank you very much, Nick.
3: Well, you're more than welcome. And also put it online on your various uh, areas there, because that, that needs to be heard. That was quite beautiful.
2: Thank you. Well, um, I'm very I give you
3: excited. Sir. Oh, go ahead. <laughs>
2: Yeah, no, I give you the scepter of Zeus and uh, turn the show over to And Thank you again very much for your kind words and your friendship.
3: Uh, cer- certainly uh, from my heart. Uh, so this is indeed the uh, uh, Nick Curto Presents uh, Disclosure Network, and I'm Nick Curto, co-founder and director of Disclosure Network New York. Uh, DNNY is a grassroots organization now celebrating our 18th year of providing two meetings a month throughout the year, Here in Manhattan, we focus on cutting-edge UFO ET issues, paranormal phenomenon of all kinds, as well as many important related subjects from a wide variety of sources as we go deep into these exciting and sometimes quite misunderstood subjects that the mainstream press will not discuss or disclose. Our members do intensive investigative research into these various topics and share that information with our group at our meetings twice a month and also with our Internet followers. Uh, We have, uh, right from the beginning, uh, uh, adopted this motto, and I'd like to read it for you because it says quite a lot about the group, quote, connecting the dots to seek truth, unquote. We have available to everyone worldwide the DNNY News Blast email service focusing on these topics of special interest. And that, by the way, is totally free. Just go to our website, and I'm going to repeat that twice so you'll get it, uh, www.dnny.info. Again, I'll repeat that, dnny.info. And type in your email address where it's asked for, and you'll be then connected to us within a day or so. And hundreds of people have already signed on for this free service, and the more are joining every single day, I'm happy to say. Again, we'd love you to have it and to, to enjoy what, what's going on, which has uh, never been more than right now. It's very, a very, very exciting time. Now, my featured guest, I'm very, very excited to have her with us tonight. She is quite quite a busy person. And a good friend and colleague, Jennifer Stein. And, Jennifer, welcome to the group here.
4: Thank you so much, Nick. It's wonderful to be invited on your show.
3: Well, um I want to do a very brief introduction. I think if I, I, I read all that you do, we'd be here for quite some time. But <laughs> yeah,
4: in, it, don't please uh, don't.
3: <laughs> no, 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 I, I promise. But uh, <laughs> we're going to do a capsule for our listeners just so they get some idea. Uh, Jennifer has a Bachelor of Science degree in textiles from the University of Arizona. She is an artist, an entrepreneur, an uh, activist, and award-winning documentary filmmaker, with a keen interest in ancient history and ancient civilizations. Uh, she has been reading about researching and traveling to ancient sites for the past 16 years. Uh, Jennifer founded the regional branch of the International Mutual UFO Network in the Philadelphia suburbs in 2002, known as Mainline MUFON, providing a free monthly lecture series uh, at the uh, – I'm going to try to get this. It, tr- uh, it's me. a Welsh
4: name, different Public uh, oh. Library.
3: Ah, okay. So it is a public Tridiferin. library. Tredifferin.
4: <laughs> I'll save you.
3: Tredifferin. Thank you Tridiferin, very much yeah. to, for, for that help. Um, uh, and it's a wide – you do a wide variety of interesting subjects, including uh, UFO objects. Uh, Jennifer is the state section director of MUFON PA, focusing on public education and outreach with the MUFON UFO network, that's so important, Jennifer. I'm so glad you're doing that. And last but not least, for certain, um, Jennifer is also a coordinating member of the Nordic Science Shift in Action for Eastern uh, Southeastern PA. Uh, in yes. addition, she is has been married for 35 years and has two grown daughters and lives in Wayne, Pennsylvania. Again, Jennifer, you're a very busy person indeed. <laughs>
4: Yes, um, I sort of do kind of what, like what you do in New York, except you do two monthly programs uh, for free every month. I just do one, um, but uh, well,
3: well, thank you. And you know, you know what that's like to book people and to put out the sure. advertising and all of that goes with that. You know, yeah, it's you like know, running doing... a
4: conference all year. <laughs>
3: Well, exactly. You couldn't. You nailed it. That's exactly what what it's like. Yeah. But it's also, I think you'll agree, so rewarding on so many it levels.
4: It's very uh, important. I, I'm I was so the uh, the I was the MUFON symposium chair for um, for Philadelphia. So I, I you know, I had a lot to do for that in 2018. So.
3: Wow, wow. So You know, it, it, there's an old saying about ask a busy person to do something because they know how to regulate their time and they can get it done. And I think that's really yep. true.
4: Yep, you got it. You got it.
3: <laughs> now, I'd like to just start off very briefly from the very beginning, if you will. Now, Jennifer, may I ask first, where were you born?
4: Uh, I was born in Lansdale, Pennsylvania, actually, not far from where I live now.
3: Oh, Oh, very good. And were um, you were you from a big family with brothers and sisters, or, or not?
4: No, well, not really. I have one. I had one older sister. I lost her two years ago on Thanksgiving Day, and I oh, still I'm, have I'm a sorry. living brother. He is 80. We were all about um, eight to nine years apart. So my brother is about 16 years older than I am now.
3: Oh, really? Well, recently. that's interesting. Yeah, it's so almost a generational uh, difference, exactly. isn't it? Yeah.
4: Yeah, we wow. each came in a completely different stage in my parents' <laughs> lives. In wow. fact, when I was little, I used to think the gestation period was eight years instead of eight months, or nine months. You know, I was like, oh, we're all eight and a half to nine years apart. I guess that's,
3: <laughs> how, <laughs> wow. I guess that's wow. how long that it takes
4: d- to have a baby. <laughs>
3: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I can understand why you would think that, you know, but that's so interesting. I, I that's amazing. I don't, never met anybody with that sort of a, a brothers and sister spatial background like that. It's amazing. Yeah, different. Now, just about your mom and dad briefly, uh, were they anywhere interested in the same kinds of things that you are now so active in?
4: Well, not really. No. Um, but they were entrepreneurs like I am. Um, My dad was an architect and uh, designed and and built homes and actually was a draftsman uh, while he was in architecture school and worked uh, in Chicago under Frank Lloyd Wright for a short period of time. And my mom was a very talented interior decorator and designer and had her own businesses uh, all of her life, um, doing a whole variety of things. So
3: So you do have a background, yeah.
4: Yeah, I, I, I grew up learning skills and learning to be an entrepreneur and learning how to just push up my sleeves and do things myself.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: So That's I don't regret it come. at all. It's a, it was a great upbringing.
3: Oh, it sounds it. It sounds it. And it seems like fertile ground that you, you grew from that into your other own interests and then that blossomed right. from there.
4: Now, I will say I grew up in the country, and we used to lay out at night, you know, around our pool and look up and watch satellites go over and look for UFOs. But, of course, I grew up in the 60s, you know, so we were looking for Sputnik, and uh, not many people right. were talking about UFOs. It wasn't a mainstream thing in the news. It had already been pretty well hushed up. You know, I didn't mm-hmm. grow up in 47, 48, 49. I wasn't born till 55, so by '55, mm-hmm. there was a pretty good hold on secrecy. You know, the yep. the uh, cabal of uh, truth about the UFOs was well in place. I'll say that.
3: Right, right. I was, uh, trying to say that swamp gas uh, was pretty much what you were That's seeing. That's
4: right. Jay Allen, no I was already on on the scene, telling everybody everything was yeah, swamp gas or ice clouds or you know. A figment right. of your imagination, yeah.
5: Right, and then
3: people were thinking, yeah, there's no swamps around here, and that looked pretty solid to me, <laughs> you know. So uh, <laughs> right. they were trying to uh, say, you don't believe your eyes at all, right. you know, we'll tell you what you were seeing. And, of course, right. that, that has mushroomed in so many levels. And uh, But it's an exciting time now because the truth is slowly emerging. Thank God it is coming yeah. out, as you know yeah. I, yes, I can't yes. think of a more exciting time, uh, Jennifer, than right now for what's going on.
5: Now let's Well, exciting,
4: to... exciting, but then it's very, in very many cases confusing for people. Like they don't really know what to make of it all. And not only are things you know, coming out about the UFO issue, but for our topic this evening, literally the ancient past is coming out of the ground for humanity mm-hmm. to rethink uh, the history of, of human civilization on this planet.
3: Well, you know, I had a conversation about exactly what you're talking about today with some friends, and uh, I think the upshot of that was saying uh, most of what we learned, what, what we were told, what we thought was true on just about everything, every subject you can imagine, we really have to be open to rethink things now because... There's so much uh, that has been revealed and about to be revealed. So right. you really have to keep an open mind, and you got to do your own research.
6: You got it. That's
4: right.
3: Okay, so I want to go directly to Turkey with you. Tell us how that happened, and who was there, and please give us some some ideas about what you were seeing and learning.
4: Okay, so we're actually going to be talking about an ancient site called Göbekli Tepe um your uh guest did introduce it correctly you know your your show host um he he pretty much uh, nailed it tepe is a uh a name in turkey for like you know in turkish for hill or like um almost kind of what you might call a a, a tell or you know an archaeological site that's being you know uncovered um, it and, and Gobekli actually means pot belly, so it kind of looks like a rounded hill. Um, oh. And actually, this site happens to be right at the top. If If people know what the Fertile Crescent is historically, basically it's kind of like a crescent moon shape that would mm-hmm. drop between one part of it, one side of it would drop between what's called the Tigris and the Euphrates River Valley, and that would be what is now made up of Turkey, Syria, Iraq, parts of Iran and it kind of arches up into the mountain high mountainous area where there are many springs and the beginnings of rivers at the top in Turkey and then it drops kind of back down around the um uh, through, like, Lebanon, the, the edge of Syria through Lebanon and down into Israel. So that crescent moon is what's called the fertile crescent, meaning it's the beginning of where civilization, as we have always thought, began. And we think it began around 10 to 12,000 years ago. And it's because of, you know, pottery shards and figurines and, you know, clay tablets and things we found. The beginning of the Mesopotamian civilization, where there was the writing of cuneiform and things like that, goes back to around three to 4,000 B.C., and that was right between the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers, where this early Mesopotamian civilization began. Now, we have biblical stories of this area called Eden, the Garden of Eden, and actually, according to those Sumerian or Mesopotamian stories, what they called Eden, which we call Eden, was at the very top of this fertile crescent between the Tigris and the Euphrates river valleys, in an area uh, in southern Turkey called, you know, near an area called Urfa or Stan and that's right where Göbekli Tepe is. So it's really very, very interesting. Uh, I'll basically. I'll tell any of the listeners they, if they're in front of a computer, just go Google this site and pull up, start to pull up pictures while I'm talking about it, and they'll get um, a more clear understanding of it. So I'll spell it for the listeners. It's G O B like in boy, E like in Edward, K like in kangaroo, uh, L like lion, I like igloo. So Go Beckley as it sounds, and then Tepe is uh, capital T. Uh, e like Edward, P and Peter, E like Edward. So Göbekli Tepe. So basically, what Göbekli Tepe is is an archaeological site that's been excavated for about the last 15 to 20 years, mostly by a German archaeologist who's recently passed away. His name was Klaus Schmidt, and it's in uh, it's about 16 miles from. The border between Syria and Turkey, which has undergone a lot of changes right now, as you probably know, just in terms of borders, there's a, a lot of. It's been in the news a lot lately. Not Göbekli itself, but what's going on between Turkey and Syria, which is uh, politically quite uh, quite sad. But mm-hmm. um, nonetheless, this is a high plateau. It's kind of like a high area that's about. Um, a 1,000 feet above the uh, surface ground, kind of below it, and it's about 2,000 feet above sea level. And it's a mostly a limestone, crescent, moon-shaped hill area, and it's got structures that were started to be uncovered about mm, maybe 20 to 25 years ago, when Klaus Schmidt showed up and sort of designated it as uh, from Germany as um as a real archaeological site and started to uncover it the the man who owned the property was a uh, grape farmer and he was pl- trying to farm the area because it was really perfect for growing wines and grapes
5: mm. and mm. he
4: wanted to fertilize, you know, the whole area. So he was trying to till a lot of the soil, and he kept running into these rocks when he, when he in certain wow. areas, when he'd go too deep, and like the rocks <laughs> seemed like never ending. He kept chipping away at it and chipping away at it, and in the '60s, a, uh, actually a. Uh, a Archaeological group from Chicago University showed up there and said, oh, these are old gravestones, and it's, you know, that's all it is. So nobody bothered to really think it was a major archaeological site.
5: Mm. So
4: anyway, there was a, a large grapevine planted on top of most of this archaeological site, and gradually that had to give way to the uncovering of these stones. So many people know what Stonehenge is designed to, and, and originally probably looked like, which was a series of standing stones in a circle with larger stones in the middle and smaller stones on the outside, like a double ring of, of, uh, of, of standing stones. Gobekli Tepe is somewhat similar to that, but not exactly. So in Stonehenge, you have roughly hewn stone that is actually granite, Uh, not limestone. Uh, Granite and balsat is a much harder stone in in England uh, at Stonehenge than what exists in in southern Turkey at Gobekli Tepe. But the stones at Gobekli Tepe are are more thinly, articulately um, carved stones, and they are in the shape of a T, like the letter T in our alphabet. So they are flat, sort of flat uh, maybe they're about the two to three feet in thickness and maybe about uh well i would say maybe even less than that maybe even about a foot in thickness and about maybe three to five feet wide and they stand upright and they could be upwards of 10 to 15 to 18 feet tall, depending on whether or not they are. the outer stones are smaller than the inner stones. And these are deliberately placed to stand in a circle facing one another. And the central keystones that are standing in many of the, uh, the circles that have been uncovered, and I'll go into that uh, in a moment, there are more than one circle of stones. The central T stones are elaborately carved, and they almost uh, look what I would call anthropomorphic in that there oh. are arms carved down the sides of these T's. There's no head shape, so they're not like human figurines, but they almost mm-hmm. look like they are... Standing tees to represent human figurines, because there's an arm going down both sides and fingers that wrap around the front skinny edge of these standing te stones. And there's even a loincloth on on some of the most elaborately carved
5: <laughs> wow. stones,
7: you know,
4: over what would be the genitals of this standing tee. And a belt. There's like a waist or a belt that goes around these standing T's And hmm. the T's tend to almost look as if they're slightly arched up or looking up towards what might be the configuration of the uh, Taurus, uh, Orion, and um, one other constellation, Taurus, Orion, and I'm blanking on the other constellation. I'll get it in a moment because I have a PowerPoint in front of me I can go quickly refer to. So it's really quite fascinating. Now, not only are these you know has one you know complete circle been uncovered actually four or five have been officially uncovered and there are more yet to be uncovered which is quite Hmm. interesting yeah there are 26 have been found in the ground so that there are only five or six that have been uncovered. So this is a very long and ongoing archaeological, you know, uh, site to be uncovered. Um, oh, it's only we've only hit the tip of the iceberg. Now, what's I'm very very sure. huh. interesting. Uh, I'm about about Gobeckley, and I, I jump in at any time if you want to ask questions. No, no, no. I'd bother
3: you. Go ahead because you're doing such a beautiful job of painting this picture. Okay,
4: so thank so please go
7: ahead okay. yeah.
4: Um, what's really fascinating is the fact that um, these stone circles appear to have been deliberately buried, meaning hmm. that they they weren't knocked over in like what looks like a mudslide. Many people who have traveled to ancient sites probably know that in, say, Pumapuca, Bolivia, that mm-hmm. There is clear evidence that there was a massive catastrophic event that happened in Pumapuca, and those large megalithic stones, which have been coming out of the ground for years and are very intricately carved and detailed, look like pieces of machines or equipment of some sort, because, or they look like large H-blocks that could fit together and build a wall, as, um, you know, uh, Giorgio Tsoukalos, Who's on Ancient Aliens? He's always, you know, spouting that theory and idea. At those, those stones in Puka are definitely covered by a mudslide, and you can tell by just clearly looking. Any archaeologist can tell you that. You can look at the at the ground, look at how the stones are strewn about, and there was a major catastrophic event that happened. Here mm-hmm. in Goibeckley, it's very different. It looks like some of the stones are broken. Some of the tees have breaks in them. But it looks like whoever deliberately decided to cover this site reconstruction, reconstructed and stood up these tees as best they could, even if they were cracked, and and tried to get them all the same height that they were originally, almost as if they were an energetic model of some sort, or it was important that the site be reconstructed. And then they went about placing boulders or rocks clearly by hand in a circular fashion between all these standing tees, which seemed to face into the middle, and then these mm-hmm. larger standing tees in the middle were also barricaded in by by boulders and stones that were delicately placed and then layers of soil and mud were laid down and then more layers of stone were laid, almost like you would build lasagna, right, if you're a cook.
5: You <laughs> would lay down
4: your meat, then lay down your noodles, then lay down more lasagna, then lay down your cheese, then lay down more noodles.
5: So this, mm-hmm. was,
4: these sites were deliberately covered over after they were built. And we know that they were deliberately covered over for a number of reasons, not only by the way the stones are in place, but as these stones have been removed and the tees have been sort of, you know, held up now by by wood uh, to keep them standing as the archaeologists Mm have been been uncovering them, they are discovering that all of the standing tees, you know, many of the cases, have very elaborate carvings on them. Now, there's oh. no writing on them, there's no cuneiform on them, but there are car- carvings of, of animals and, and bugs and insects and vultures and snakes and uh, uh, things that look like wild boars. Not only are there carvings, but the most of the carvings, I mean, some, some are carved into the tea, but a majority of them are relief-type carvings. So if mm-hmm. you understand... Sculpture, Nick, you'll understand that a relief sculpture is done by taking a larger piece of stone and removing pieces of stone so that what's left is a sculptured item. So there yes. are these standing tees with relief sculptures on, uh, you know, attached to them, but they're not hooked on like you would hang an ornament on a Christmas tree. They are, they are created by removing all of the stone to leave in place the sculpture of what might look like a wild fox or a wild boar or a snake or a a scorpion. And On that takes a lot more talent surface. and a
3: lot more a lot more talent and a lot more work to do yes. that kind of Yes. Yeah, so that, that is quite impressive yes. for that age.
4: Exactly. What? Now let me tell you about the dating. We haven't even jumped into that <laughs> that that soup pot yet. When the when the these layers of deliberately buried stone around these standing tees was taken away, there were some other things found from time to time, like hmm. possibly some linen, some leather, some food materials that could be carbon dated. Because stone itself you cannot carbon date. Right. If anyone's listening to other podcasts or PowerPoint presentations and people say they dated the stone. Raise your hand and say, wait a minute.
5: You don't (laughs) have your
4: facts right. Stone Mm -hmm. doesn't decay. The only way you can can do carbon dating is with carbon-14 decay. We're monitoring the speed with which carbon decays. That's what that means, carbon-14 dating. And you can go back roughly 68,000 years, give or take a few, um, pretty accurately with carbon dating, so some food materials, some you know, uh, leather goods, some linen, you know things that definitely could decay were found. In fact, there were even bone shards in there that may literally have been used as tools for some of this intricate carving. because mm-hmm. limestone, unlike other material like andesite, which you find in Puka and you find at uh, you know, uh, Stonehenge. That's a very, very hard stone created in a very different geologic condition. But limestone is quite porous and quite soft. So you can actually carve it with a copper chisel or with, a, with another harder stone or with a, um, a bone shard um, and even in cases of some delicate carving, maybe even with a sharp pointed tip of like like a turkey feather or something like that. So mm-hmm. um, the, the fact that these stones were carved is, and it is not that amazing because the stone is soft. But the, but the fact that these are 18 to 20 ton stones, you know, these are quite large stones.
3: So how in the world would they take something that gigantic, that heavy, and then control it with the exact precision? Yes,
4: that is quite amazing. And the dating, based on the carbon, like I was mentioning, puts this site much further back in history than we thought man was sophisticated and could do this. They're considered to be Neolithic sites, and these go back well into 10,000 B.C., somewhere between... 10,900 B.C. and
6: 9,600 B.C. So, so this, this is, is kind the of year.
3: This is rewriting Here. what we know as we thought was history, and it's saying, wait a moment, folks, we've exactly. got some new data.
6: Bingo, wow. Nick. You
4: are getting it. That is why Gobekli Tepe has turned archaeology on its head,
5: mm-hmm. and
4: many, many people still don't they kind of are ostriches with their heads in the sand they're like don't tell me about gobekli tepe it's still coming out of the ground and and we're not really like fully buying it hook line and sinker we think there might be some missing pieces you don't understand because this Uh is uh, pre-agriculture right this is pre-farming this is pre-pottery this is pre-writing it Incredible. actually goes back to a time between what's called the younger driest and the 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 older driest it's a It's a period of time where there was a major ice ice you know caps on the north and southern hemispheres so we we were in the middle of a major ice age, and then there was this slight warming then we dipped back down into a cooling period again and another ice age, and then things started to warm up again around eight 9,000 B.C. So it's right in the middle of this warming period. And this is precisely when we believe about 10,000 years ago, ten to 11,000 years ago, there's a lot of speculation that there were major cataclysmic changes on the surface of the Earth. If you go back to the stories of the sinking of Atlantis, that's put right around this period of time. And Plato, hmm. you know, wrote about this.
5: He had nope. these
4: two uncles, these great uncles that went to Egypt named Titus and Sereris, I think their names were. And they asked the Egyptian priests and kings about the earlier history. You know, where who built the pyramids and where did all this advanced architecture come from and, you know, trading and, you know, all this you write about in your histories. Where did all that come from? And they said, well, it was all destroyed, but it was in the, the Great Flood. So that's like the biblical flood, right? With the story of Noah. You know, sure. Maybe maybe that Sumerian tale. That it, it, actually, the, the flood tale is also told in a Sumerian text referred to as the Gilgamesh story, and it confirms right, right. this major flood. So Göbekli Tepe sits right at this this complex confluence of cataclysmic events that were going on on the planet. So there's a good chance that possibly whoever built Gobekli Tepe
5: knew
4: the flood was coming and they wanted mm. to bury it to preserve it.
5: Mm. That's the
4: thinking. That's the thinking theory. because not only, not only were these stones put in place and all these 26 circles were deliberately buried, I, as I said, only six have really been uncovered, Um, 20 more remain in the ground completely covered. But you can see them based on sound-penetrating radar and LIDAR and things like that, so we know that they're there.
3: Um, So Jennifer, is there an ongoing is an ongoing investigation? Is this an ongoing project now that's underway? Well,
4: yes, yes. I have to say, um, I'm not up to date in the last three years since Klaus Schmidt passed away. I think he died in 2000. Let's see, I was there in 2012 and i think he died in 2014 so this german archaeological institute that was there connected with the university and i don't remember which one it is and i apologize i, I didn't reread that information before the interview but um he uh I, since klaus died i think another major archaeologist has taken over but you know um, starting in on somebody else's research project is complicated, plus there's been huge amounts of civil unrest going on in in southern Turkey and in Syria, and the war in yep. Syria and the refugees coming in all that has caused great uh, disruption in civilized academia, you know, having uh, the f- the freedom and the security to send, you know, students and, you know, summer students on a dig to go research. You no, know, nobody no parents gonna let their kid go into a hot zone of military no,
5: action. No, no, and so that's so
4: so the, percent, the site yeah. was closed for a while. It was closed to tourism. There was fear that there would be, uh, like you know, Taliban-type destruction that would take place oh, at the whoa, site. Oh wow! You know, uh, because the, like a lot of that one, sort of stuff went on, definitely in Syria and also in uh, in in Iraq, which is really quite sad.
2: So. Oh, oh, yes.
4: I have to say i I know that they what they want to continue to research it, there there's a uh, desire to. Uh the person I traveled with is Robert Schock, who is a geologist at Boston University.
5: He also oh. appears
4: on the the History Channel many, many times. Uh, Linda Howe, myself, Robert Schock and about forty other people went uh to Gobekli Tepe. In, how wonderful uh, that, that, that that particular
3: group that that's a wonderful group that you surrounded yourself oh, with yes. oh, wow yes. that's I, that's fantastic I,
4: I, I have to say i'm very grateful to be a, a dear old friend of linda House. she used to live in pennsylvania and we became uh, good friends um, doing crop circle research. I would run into her in England every year for years and years. And when we were there, you know, we'd have dinner and we'd say, well, when we get back to Philly, let's, you know, let's get together. Let's have dinner, which we did. And uh, she became close friends with many of my close girlfriends and we continue to stay in touch. So when I knew about the trip uh, and I decided to make it with Robert, I mean, he, he has a website and he does post trips and It's not like I was a personal friend of Robert's, although I'd like to think I am now. I know he and and his wife quite well. But I literally heard him speak about Gobekli at a conference in um, Nevada called um, CPEC. It stands for the Conference of Ancient Culture and Percession, run by a Mm -hmm. wonderful man named Walter Crintenden. And I was at that conference with some of my girlfriends, and we heard Robert present, and he said, by the way, I think this was in 2010 or 2011, mm-hmm. he said, I'm planning to go, and I'm going next year. I'm going to go to Gobekli." And uh, I looked at Grace and said, well, we're going on that trip.
5: Oh, and oh, I wrote I, the note
4: right then, right then and there. Absolutely. I said, I'm coming on the trip, and I probably, I'm probably bringing 15 to 16 people with me who are That's desperately awesome. interested in this and would love to meet you and travel with you. And I did. I brought 16 people with me.
3: Oh, that's you know. great you did that. <laughs> um, you know, I, you were describing this so beautifully, and I, I was looking at a construction um, of bridges just the other day on the Internet, and that, that T-shape is, is being used right now as a cutting-edge way of making highways. You know, they build yes, on top right. of that. You're, yes, you
5: And yes, when that's you were describing it, I
3: was thinking, you. Yeah. do yeah. you think that I'm, t- I'm just asking, is there any uh, ideas here that on top of the T, was, was there was any there other structure? Or yeah. anything that it's they know it's of? a
4: good question. It's a very good question, Nick. Klaus Schmidt did not believe that there was because they found no evidence of it there at the okay. site, like any kind of thatched roofs or anything like that.
5: And yeah. most, okay. of tees, most
4: of the teas, most of the teas. Did not have specific things on the top of them, which would designate maybe something fit on top. Like at Stonehenge, many of the standing stones have these like conical peaks, and a larger stone literally fits on top of them, and it is grooved out, and it's like a pin and a hole, right? You know where they fit together right, to right, hold right. them in place. There's no evidence of something like that at Göbekli, although some of that. the T's and not all of the teas. This makes it confusing. Some of the teas have what you might consider to be what David Childress calls a a key cut, kind of as if there is a, a cutout where something would fit into it. Um, oh. You- You find key cuts in Peru and Bolivia and South America where you have two stones next to each other, and then there's like an I or an H, and people have found some of these where there was literally metal poured in them to hold them or keep them in place. Now, Mm. it's not exactly like a key cut, but it's similar to a key cut on some of the T's at the top. But again, Mm. not all of them. Now, if these Mm. sites, yeah, not all of them, a lot of them just have kind of like or not smooth tops, almost as if they have a series of, like, polka-dotted indentations, not not clearly carved or sculpted, but a rough top to the surface where the rest of the stone is smooth. So Hmm. maybe that's evidence that there was a roof, but the roof was removed before they were covered. It's really quite unclear. If okay. there were if there were coverings, then they would probably be coverings that might look like a rounded tent of some sort. And the two central taller tees would kind of act like maybe what you would consider to be the central poles of a circus tent, right? And then the outer right, poles right. are smaller and lower. So maybe it was some kind of roofing structure like that. But since there's no evidence of it left there now... Remember, if these were, if the roofs were removed and these sites were then buried, then this great flood happened. I mean, there was several layers of soil, enough to farm, right? Enough for this farmer to create a grape, a grape orchard there, a vineyard oh. actually on top of this hill. And it's wow. only in one part of the hill where the thi- where the ground was maybe thinner. Did he keep running into these tees? He didn't know what they were. <laughs> And that's when, you know, he finally called an archaeologist, and finally they dug down and uncovered one and went, oh, my gosh, look what we have here. So,
3: well, I think from what you're describing, that with the, uh, when, it, when it is clear that they can, again, uh, continue this, this digging and this research, there will be more answers uh, that will unfold. And maybe we'll yeah. get some of the uh, answers that we, uh, we really are dying to know about that's more right. about what that structure was like but
4: th- that's this right. is
3: so amazing and wonderful and the well, fact no, that this I, discovered I can tell, oh I, can, my goodness.
4: T- I can tell you a little more um, please, which please. is fascinating because I actually present on this I go out and give PowerPoint presentations so maybe you will want me to come up I think I'm coming up to speak on crop circles for your group at some point that yeah, maybe you a, yeah you, uh, I with.
3: saw that you were definitely booked uh, In the new year And we're yeah, certainly looking yep. forward to that I now. think that's
4: April 5th In the middle of the day Two to four kind of thing yes. Which is easy yep, From yep. Philly it's a two hour drive up there And I can present in person So I'll tell you a little more About why Gobekli Tepe Is really making archaeologists And historians And you know theologians <laughs> um, Really scratch their head what is yeah what is unclear is it's kind of like well if these existed that means that there had to be a large body of manpower that was there making them because just to lift stones like this and move them although they didn't move them far there's evidence that these stones were carved close to where they were erected because this is a huge, like I was saying, it's almost a crescent-shaped hill itself when you look at it from the air, and it's all limestone with this layer of soil on the top of it. So it's suspected that most of the stones came right from this limestone outcropping. In fact, there are still some stones lying that were partially carved, but then not fully carved and erected that you can see Hmm. from the surface. You know as you're as you're standing on the top of this hill, right. so people who are you know archaeologists who have gone there and theologians and whatnot have gone there and said, all right, how could you have a large body of manpower doing this without agriculture to feed them, right? and sure. without sure. some sure. kind of animals or domestication of animals. So why are we not finding living quarters there? where people living nearby? Maybe so, but mm-hmm. there isn't evidence right at the top of this Crescent Hill where these structures are that people were living there. So it's thought that, you know, like there aren't trash pits and there aren't large amounts of shells that are found and fish bones. And, you know, there there isn't evidence that they were making pottery and cooking. There aren't hearths that are found. You know, living structures have specific, you know, telltale signs that an archaeologist will look for. So that's not been sure. found. Only structures. So, the archaeologists say, well, this was some sort of religious temple place, or maybe it was a special burial place of some sort where they brought their dead to. Then, like in India, there's a tradition where they they cut up the dead into pieces, and vultures come down and pick apart the flesh from the bones, and then carry you know pick apart the bones, and, and that's how a person is buried. It's called Oh, I never Burn. knew
3: that. That's interesting to me. I never heard
4: about that it's, before. It's wow. an ancient type of burial known in okay. in in the Far East. Hmm. Um so, and it, some of sometimes that also happens in, like, Bhutan and Laos and Cambodia and things like that. Even today, certain unique uh, religious cultures still observe it. So they thought, well, maybe this is a place, because they were finding a lot of bone shards up there, and they didn't know if these bone shards were related to carving tools and instruments or whether they were left over from, you know, were they sharp or were they did it look like they'd been chipped down and they'd been used to actually do some of this carving. So... Mm. The archaeologists are saying, well, it's kind of like a chicken-and-egg story, which came first? Did well, agriculture first. and the domestication of animals develop so that we could then build temples? Or did temple building and worship and the desire to you know, emulate something start? And that then precipitated or developed into developing agriculture and the domestication of animals for farming and whatnot so that they could feed a large group of people who would be there working. And sure. it's now thought that Temple Building, at least in Gobekli Tepe, initiated the beginning of agriculture. Now what's also really interesting is we can genetically trace our cereal grains that are well-known today, types of barley, wheat, um, and you know, other other grains of that nature, they are originating genetically from this part of the world, right at the top oh. of the fertile crescent, in the mountains. Really? Not really? down in not down in the lower lands, but high up. So the the sophistication of like grasses into cereal grains, right? Like wheat and barley came from this period, or this this uh, this period of time, and also this uh, archaeological area, or hmm. this, you know, geologic and, area.
2: And that is a fascinating place to uh, end today's journey and to begin the next one, because there's definitely a part oh, two. Oh, yeah. We, uh, we could spend another hour talking about Gobekli.
3: At least. Well Jennifer, if I may say that uh, you absolutely have an invitation. We would love to schedule you for another part of this. Absolutely <laughs> okay. fascinating. You you've been wonderful to give us such an insight into what's going on there. And it's fascinating and I have questions, I'm sure some of the listeners do too. So I would love to schedule a part two. We'll we'll talk okay. about your schedule and see what we can do. Great, great,
5: uh, great, great. I,
3: so uh, just I uh, was um, Hercules, I just want to say to to Jennifer, just to, to sure. much love to you and uh, uh, for for doing that. That's heartfelt. Uh, you you gave us such an insight into into an amazing uh, pe- uh, uh, history uh, that that's going to. I'm sure in the next years it's going to expand, and uh, I can't wait. Um, this is Nick Kirtle for Disclosure Network New York. Wishing you all an enlightened journey as you connect the dots. To seek the truth. Till so next time, keep informed, stay safe, and be very kind to one another. Goodbye for now.
2: Goodbye. We're going to listen hey, Jennifer, to Bonehead uh, So Evolve, and uh, that was a fascinating segment. I'm looking forward to part two. Great. Thank you, Jennifer. Yeah. Oh, that
3: was that
0: really was wonderful.
2: Olympus. Pride of Olympus is our Merkaba, our sun chariot, our celestial barge, the wheels within wheels shamanic vehicle that facilitates our journey to the astral realms of Gaia's world tree. Pride of Olympus is our metaphorical vehicle for exploring various thematically related but seemingly different approaches concerned with explaining our human origins guiding our human development, and actualizing our maximal potential. Pride of Olympus supports all of humanity's efforts to transcend this world and venture forth into the great beyond, be they metaphysical, mechanical, or even imaginal. And like all astral conveyances, the Pride of Olympus can and does assume many forms, including the form of this uh, podcast, um, we are going to be returning to the realms of science fiction increasingly more and more uh, in the days ahead. And uh, until that initiative starts, I'll be sharing a lot of the writings in our archives, um, in shows that are filler between other shows in a way. Uh, if you're listening, you're going to get a lot of information uh, that others will not have when we launch. So hang in there. And. Um, we are going to start with Hercules Unbound by DC Comics. These are reviews of a series uh, that DC put out. A millennium ago, Ares bound Hercules to some stones jutting out of the sea surrounding Elas and cloaked the small isle with invisibility. Hercules finally broke free in time to help a blind boy, Kevin, and his dog, Basil, fight off a tentacled horror from the mythic realms. Hercules discovered that World War III had devastated the world and that horrible mutants now roam the earth. As Hercules accompanies his new friend to Rome in search of Kevin's father, they fight off some minotaurs and discover that Ares is behind much of the mayhem. Hercules challenges Ares but must instead fight Ares' champion, a large red mutant reminiscent of the Hulk. Kevin and Basil help take down the creature, only to discover that it is Kevin's father they have killed. And that was the first issue. On the cover, you see this new version of Hercules. Uh, in DC, for those who don't know, Hercules is just as often a rogue or a bad guy as he is a good guy. Here, he's definitely a good guy. Um, So this new iteration, they have him bound to giant stone, and he's breaking his chains and uh, getting free. The second issue of Hercules Unbound has Hercules fighting mutant dogs that are red in color uh, and look uh, very ferocious. Hercules, Kevin, and Basil make their way to post-Holocaust Paris, where they fight some green mutants and meet some Brits. Kevin is thrilled at encountering more non-mutated folk, Hercules is suspicious of them. Nonetheless, he strikes up a good rapport with Jennifer, a blonde fashion model. Ares summons Kerveros, a giant Nubian, who commands the hounds of hell, who are red and two-headed. He defeats Hercules, abducts Jennifer, and makes his way to his Parisian lair. Hercules and Kevin, who we now suspect has a form of ESP to compensate for his blindness find their way to the lair with Basil's help, and a fight ensues with the hounds. Meanwhile, Cerberus takes Jennifer to the underworld, having confessed that he was betrayed by his true love, Adora, a mortal woman who made him a minion of hell. He is very, very angry and bitter about this. Then we move on to issue number three, which shows Hercules and Cerberus fighting. Hell proves to be Hades, domain of Pluto and Persephone. Gerberus has taken Jennifer Monroe to their palace. Hercules has been to the underworld before and follows their trail undaunted by the perils ahead. Hercules and Kevin must fight shadow beasts before they cross the Styx. Orpheus joins them on their quest to retrieve Jen. Ares of the two Brits in the surface world, much to their chagrin. Jennifer learns more about Cerberus, as the uh, English call him, slain by the woman he loved, rescued from the underworld by Ares, who must now faithfully serve. Cerberus and Hercules have all out brawl. Nothing in the landscape is safe from their tossing each other about. Orpheus who looked back and lost Ebriviki, uh, also known as Eurydice here in English, millennia ago, proposes a new deal to Pluto, the one that would free the fashion model. Hercules defeats Gerberos, who dies again, free from his curse. Orpheus joins his beloved in the underworld and Jennifer is free to leave with Hercules and Kevin. Uh, The next issue sees Hercules uh, wrestling with uh, someone and hoisting a car up in the air. Um, The issue following there sees uh, Hercules uh, wielding Big Ben, it seems, Uh, and Jennifer, I believe, is reclining uh, on the street uh, before him. Hercules, Kevin, Jennifer, and Basil the dog make their way to England in quest of their missing companions. A suspicious note directed them there. En route, they are attacked at sea by a torpedo-firing PT boat and on land by uniformed beastmen wielding firearms. Jennifer is kidnapped and held hostage by Hunter Blood, a former collector whose unshielded gaze causes items to decay. He is now the greatest collector in the world, but he can't enjoy his treasures, so he's quite bitter. Hunter Blood, a very much typical supervillain, is given to long speeches and an overabundance of gloating. A talking gorilla gives Herc his version of what happened in the Holocaust. A bright light made all the humans disappear, and a strange mist then quickly evolved the animals into intelligent humanoids. Hercules believes that Ares is responsible for creating the mutants. Herc confronts Hunter Blood, winds up holding a big chunk of Big Ben for a while, then topples the tyrant to his doom. His resentful, animal slaves react quickly and tear him apart. In the interim, Hercules alienates Jen with his old-fashioned machismo. We are treated with a glimpse of Ares's hospitality. We wonder if Kevin is really a mutant, and Basil the Hound is unfortunately killed. The following issue has Hercules fighting what looks like knights on horses and ancient but futuristic armor. Hercules, Jen the fashion model, Duak Molloy the sentient and tough-talking gorilla, and Kevin the Enigma, who grieves for Basil the dead dog, whose corpse he carries, are still in London. They're attacked by and defeat the first wave of Ares's Greco-Roman warriors. Hercules tells of the days of Olympus, when he and Ares were friends as well as brothers. He once discovered that Ares, who delights in taking life, can also restore it with a touch. He wonders if Ares will restore life to Basil if he bested him in combat. Meanwhile, Ares and his forces amass at Stonehenge to perform a ritual. One of their captives, David, escapes and finds his way back to Herc and company, Things do not look well for the remaining captive, Simon St. Charles. We discover that Ares seeks the sweet oblivion that no immortal can ever attain, and that this causes him to revel in carnage and annihilation. Hercules interrupts his speech, and the brothers fight with great fury, and the world trembles. And on the cover, you see Hercules caught in uh, what looks like uh, magic uh, bolts and in pain. Um, We discover that Ares seeks the sweet oblivion that no mortal can ever attain, and that this causes him to revel in carnage and annihilation. Hercules interrupts his speech and the brothers fight with great fury, and the world trembles. Ultimately, Hercules defeats Ares by utilizing some earth power, and the war god restores life to the dog on an altar within The still standing stones. The Olympians part amicably, but swear to destroy each other when they next meet. And here we'll leave it with a cliffhanger um, to be continued in a future episode. Um, We are going to switch uh, gears a little bit. And uh, we are going to uh, look at a science fiction role-playing game that is uh, mythic and Greek. And uh, this one is called Dogs of Hades and is published by Savage Mojo. We'll start with a player's guide. I've been questing for a truly mythic approach to space opera for quite some time, and I believe I finally found what I've been seeking in Magnus Nygaard's Dogs of Hades, an RPG published by Savage Mojo. In this setting, mortals facing the deadly and relentless wrath of Zeus were whisked away by the goddess Athena and resettled on habitable planets called gardens. The mortals thrived in these gardens, evolved, and through Athena's guidance, they have become a mighty spacefaring culture that seeks to civilize the barbarian people they encounter whilst manifesting their divine destiny. Athena's garden is the jewel in Athena's crown, and the Athenians, the apple of her eye. At present, there is peace with the Olympians, who have come to them bearing gifts, and a truce with the Sackalids, once the Athenians' greatest enemies. The Sackalids are a disturbing paradox, barbarians who are more civilized and technologically advanced than the blessed children of Athena. Dogs of Hades is a very human game, and it focuses on human interactions, which are not always heroic, noble, or wise. The social structure, laws, and politics are Byzantine. There's pretense, deception, and treachery are plenty in this game. Fortunately, the life's simplest and most enduring treasures can also be found therein. One-sheet adventures such as Harpies, Young Love Aphrodite and Young Love Hera offer further gaming experience and the character sheets provide you with eccentric personalities that can easily be introduced into your scenarios. The Spartan to space setting of Dogs of Hades, though vast, is but a drop in the sea of Savage Mojo's suzerain continuum, which offers a functional model for running an incomprehensibly vast and multi-thematic multiverse. In fact, all of the company's products emerge from, converge in, and strongly support the model. The Dogs of Hades Player's Guide, Whed my appetite, and now I'm eagerly looking forward to exploring, then experiencing the entire setting. Thank you, Magnus Nygaard and Savage Mojo. And from there, uh, we go to the characters for Dogs of Hades. If you, like me, have become increasingly more enamored of Savage Mojo's Dogs of Hades setting and wish to spend more time there, or if you'd like to take a quick look-see to discover what all the hoopla is about, then I would highly recommend Dogs of Hades Characters. This product contains Savage World stats and descriptions for nine human characters designed specifically for the Dogs of Hades RPG. They range from Athenian to Barbarian, Freeman to Slave, upstanding citizens to criminals, nobles to those born base. They are all unique And some could even be described as a tad bit eccentric. Any and all would serve well as PCs or NPCs in your adventure. I've been toying with creating a border settlement where I can run the one-sheet adventure Harpies, Young Love Aphrodite, and Young Love Hera. As I flesh out the location, I also enjoy populating it with people beyond those found in the minis. Uh, Dogs of Hades' characters has proven a tremendous help in this regard. Hmm... Sophocles is a young Athenian logician. I wonder if yes, I think my, that might actually work. See you in the garden of Athena onwards two Dogs of Hades Harpies a one sheet adventure. No thinking person would deliberately venture forth into the untamed wilderness declared inviolate by the goddess Athena, especially not on her own beloved garden world. But there's never much to do in the thinly populated farm settlements on the borderlands. And regardless of where you happen to be, kids will be kids. When a children's game of daring and bravado leads to the abduction of Zotikos, the local aristocrat's son, you and your heroic companions must retrieve him or his corpse from the talons of the merciless instruments of Athena's wrath. This is the challenge of Harpies, a one-shot adventure for those Dogs of Hades RPG fans um, who wish to expand their game. Zotikos is the treasure. He is in a cliffside cave, one of many, and about to be eaten uh, by really foul bird women. No doubt Minotaurs, centaurs, and maybe even Kiclopus are on the way and will pursue you relentlessly as long as you remain in the wilds. And who knows, your transgressions, compounded with those of the children, may even endanger the lives of the fine folks around and a bit beyond Shepherd's Rest. Harpies is a fun and fast-paced romp, a relentless race against time, and the hooves, claws, teeth, wings, hands, and crude weapons of deadly mythical beasts who are very determined to get you. As with the other one-shot adventures, Harpies is a fun standalone game that can easily be added to or expanded into much more detailed Dogs of Hades campaign. Three scenes and an aftermath with four variant endings make this adventure with minor tweaking extremely replayable. As long as there are forbidden boundaries and curious kids, the possibility of this happening again, or even fairly often, remains very high. Onwards to Dogs of Hades' Ramblings, another one-sheet adventure. Nobody wants to be in Gortina. The residents all wish to be living elsewhere, and the Mithonian military forces would rather be doing anything other than policing this police. Having sided with the enemy during the Sakhalid War about a half century or so ago, they remain resentful, resented, and unrepentant. Six Mithonian hoplites have recently been murdered while on routine patrol. Polemarchos Asenius has been asked to look into it. He has wisely ordered you and your companions to investigate. So begins Ramblings, a one-sheet adventure in the Dogs of Hades RPG setting, published by Savage Mojo. It was written by Magnus Nygaard himself and edited by Miles M. Cantor himself. Uh, and that is the author and the publisher, by the way. There are no detectives yet on Athena's Garden, so there are no clear procedures to follow. And though some may seek to hinder you, absolutely no one wishes to help you solve the crime. There are clues plenty, visits to the morgue and to the seedier sections of the city, thugs and criminals, plenty of stuff to rummage through, plus corruption and lots of ill-gotten gain. Five scenarios and an aftermath will bring you to this adventure's conclusion and leave you confronted with a huge ethical dilemma. What will you do? Your PC's entire future will uh, will most definitely be determined by your decision. And onwards. We are near the time for our next uh, segment. So I'm going to play a transitional song and uh, then we will continue. Uh, Thank you for um, allowing me to introduce you to uh, material that will appear in our upcoming shows. And uh, I wish you, until next time, uh, joyous journeys and happy adventures. Um, As I stated earlier, I was the uh, Grand Marshal of today's uh, parade in the Borough of Tenafly, and I read an Olympian blessing to the folks assembled there. Um, I posted this on uh, Facebook for our online community, and I will post it uh, here as well uh, for our audience. I call upon heaven and the benevolent powers that shaped us in the dawn of time and guide us still to bless this place, its people, and all that they hold dear. May all be blessed with optimal wellness, with abundance and prosperity, with love and peace, with joy and fulfillment. In the name of the highest, I dedicate myself toward this becoming so. And from the altar high atop Mount Olympus, my soul's true home, I sound the horn of summoning, and I welcome all who heed the call. And now we're going to listen to Brent Tredurian's King of Dreams, and then we'll be back with Unarian Revelations. And welcome back to Pride of Olympus. I am Hercules Invictus, and I'm greatly looking forward to the next segment, which is Unarian Revelations. Today, our guests are Celeste Pell and Polarich Greenwood from the Unarius Academy of Sciences, and our topic is Who was Jesus, and what was he really teaching? Greetings and welcome. How are How are you guys doing? Uh, just fine. fine. And greetings to you. Uh, greetings. I'm, I'm really glad you're here, and I'm looking forward to learning uh, this uh, material. Uh, I have not yet had a chance to really explore it through the literature, so I'm going to learn a lot tonight.
6: Fantastic. Me too.
2: <laughs> so, Celeste, since you're in, most in the know, I guess, we'll start uh, with uh, you. Uh, who was Jesus, really, and what did he teach?
7: Well, Unarius has had information about who Jesus really was since uh, its inception because the co-founder, Ernest Norman, realized that he had lived the life of Jesus, which I know sounds fantastic, but he had uh, proof of that. He even later had um, psychically the scars from the crucifixion in the palms of his hands. Oh, wow. But more than that, he— Yeah, there's a picture that shows that. But more than that, he was overshadowed by the uh, same higher being that Jesus was, Archangel um, Raphael. And he came at the time that he did, 2,000 years ago, to try to help the Israelites who had really been um, misled in that they were... um, given this religion that wasn't helping them to move forward in their progressive evolution and was teaching them uh, in the old Testament about this concept of God being a Jehovah that could choose the ones that he, the chosen people, the ones he didn't like, and, you know, be angry and vengeful. And that was not who the infinite creator truly was. So he was trying to teach them uh, in parables because there wasn't a science at that time like there is now. Um, but it was really the teachings that we have now in the areas. And what's wonderful is that we can understand them from um, the energy principles, the interdimensional energy principles uh, uh, that he was truly teaching at that time.
2: So he was ahead of his time and he came during a time when uh, humanity was in darkness and had lost uh... Uh, a lot of the uh, ancient wisdom, it it seems.
7: Yes, definitely. And that's always been the case, that when uh, humanity has been at a low point uh, in its civilizations, that masters have so-called appeared or incarnated, um, rather in male or female bodies, to bring a higher truth and to serve as examples of how you can live this um, higher truth and exhibit a loving attitude and truth. Now,
2: Paula, is there anything you'd like to add to what Celeste has uh, introduced?
6: Yes. What I'd like to add is that um, Unarius is, excuse me, is a principle of concept of science and religion. And so Ernest Norman uh, brought forth these interdimensional teachings in modern times in a way that we could understand how to heal ourselves, and through the concept of energy um, and past lives and reincarnation. And he, uh, through several, many of the books, that he brought forth in these teachings of Eunarius, he talks about and describes what some of the parables of Jesus uh, were really meant to be interpreted. And also, <clears throat> he describes that, and I've heard this from other teachings and other New Age groups, that uh, the Bible uh, and other... Um, Zoroastrianism and other religious um, teachings that these higher advanced minds like Jesus and Krishna and Buddha brought to the earth man to, to better help us evolve um, were distorted by man after they left and the original words and teachings uh, are no longer in um, are no, we no longer have access to them They've been changed through misinterpretations and distortions from various churches and other religious um, organizations. And so the original truths have been lost. That that is, now. True.
2: That, that is very true. Well, and for those listening at home, uh, this is something that can be uh, uh, proven uh, through scholarship. Uh, here on our planet, uh, there there was uh, a body of uh, ancient lore, um, which uh, became the property of uh, priests, and uh, its uh, external forms was, uh, you know, very very uh, symbolic. Uh, And unless you knew how to interpret the symbols, you wouldn't get at the core of truth uh, uh, that uh, it hid. And part of this was to protect the information because there were very unscrupulous people then as now uh, who would uh, abuse it and use it to uh, manipulate and enslave Uh, but then also their distortions uh, did come in, as they often do when uh, humans who are not connected to the higher realms uh, become stewards for uh, information that they they don't totally understand. And uh, this uh, golden thread and what happened to it uh, makes up the history of the uh, Western spiritual uh, tradition. And uh, again, it's preserved in in books that we have so this isn't just a new age uh, concept that's being uh, you know presented this is actuality uh, sorry I went off on a tang- tangent there I just wanted to add oh, that it's no, great it's, For folks yeah that
7: that was that was well put definitely well when um, Ernest Norman first met his wife to be Ruth Norman he had been searching for almost 15 years because he knew there was someone that was going to help him in important work he had to do and that he would be producing books but he didn't know any more details a conscious mind could have interfered and they met at what could be considered like a new age convention now in LA and um, she was uh, there waiting to get um, reading from a psychic and he started telling her only information that he she and her recently deceased husband would know about this person Carlos and she finally started paying attention to him and uh, the forgot about the psychic and because Ernest Norman had this very advanced uh, clairvoyance to be able to uh, read the Akashic record, but more than that, he was trying to uh, help her to understand the essence, I think, of who he was, that he wasn't just an ordinary person. So there was an immediate, she had had an inner knowing, had a vision, a dream that she was to be involved in important work and uh, had been a seeker for many years. And so They got together um, right away, went out for coffee, and he started channeling this beautiful poetry uh, called the Elysium, which is in a form of parables. And they started um, realizing, she started having flashbacks, that they had been together at the time of Jesus, that she was actually his betrothed Mary. Uh, wrongly called Mary uh, Magdalene. Her real name was Mary of Bethany, and her father was, Les, Les, how do you say it, Lysaurus? The innkeeper. And um, she was essentially the 13th disciple, and the other disciples were jealous of her. Plus, at that time, yeah. women did not have a good stature in society. No. Um, so, uh, but anyhow, she uh, carried on. Uh, Jesus' teachings to some degree. Actually, he, he didn't actually die on the cross. Uh, he was given clemency, which sometimes happened and taken down. And uh, Mary and some of the Essenes, he was a disciple of the Essenes, put him in a cave, hid him in a cave. And they brought herbs to administer to him because there weren't medicine like we know it at that time. And... Um, he managed to escape from there, and I believe it was the Isle of Crete where he lived for about six more months in hiding. And he didn't have such concern about himself, so he continued to try to teach the followers that were there. And it was too much; um, the wounds got infected, and in about six months' time, he he passed over. So he did not die on the cross, and um, of course. When Ernest and Ruth met, what they realized right away is that the mission of Jesus had been cut short, that his true teachings had been distorted, put in the form of the Bible, and of course it was added to, added to, um, and the true teachings that he was trying to bring, that that was what they were going to do now— um, when they met in 1954 and started the mission of Unarius is that through the books, the first 17 books that Ernest Norman channeled, he was bringing these core teachings of Jesus again, but in a form as Paula said, that was based on the joining of science and spirit and coming from an interdimensional uh, scientific perspective rather than just parables and could be um Understood in this time when we have uh, third-dimensional physics. We're not quite there with fourth-dimensional physics. So uh, he also attracted in his, the early days as students many of the individuals that in their own past lives had um, key roles with him as Jesus, whether they were the ones that condemned him, the priests, nailed him on the cross, and so he was uh, helping through being in the physical, so to speak, um, for everyone to reenact that past and to work it out. So he had uh, not only recognized his past and Mary uh, now as Ruth, her past, but students. And um, about um, within a few years, a student had been... In an old bookstore, reached up on a top shelf and pulled down an old tomb called um, The All Caught, All Caught Life of Jesus of Nazareth by Alexander Smythe. And it was actually originally printed in 1899, and there were hardly any copies left in print. And what it was, it was, um, it's quite fascinating. Unarius republished it. And uh, we sell it as a book, and it's the true story of Jesus as told by Saul and um, Paul. And they are um, coming back as spirits and giving this information to Alexander Smythe, who says at the beginning, why was I chosen? You know, he'd never been into the occult, Mm -hmm. He hadn't been a channeler. And so he he puts the story in writing. When you read it, it's uh, very descriptive. I think someday it will be made into a movie and they're actually, um, yeah, there's actually whole passages in it that are uh, Jesus, as he was speaking to his disciples, but they're trying to turn around um, what they did when they were here because they kind of made a deal that they were trying to get him thought of as um, a Messiah and uh, that they could be uh, his followers and gain positions Mm -hmm. of power. If he got into position of power and that was just the opposite of what he wanted, you know, he didn't want any form of power. He didn't consider himself special because he taught that everyone could eventually have this Christ consciousness that he had by finding the inner kingdom within, which is really finding your own true self or your higher self and developing that um, to have a connection to the spiritual realms and to be able to move forward in your evolution. So we published the book as the true life of Jesus of Nazareth. And then we also, uh, there's um, a section that was added to it in, um, the original Crucifixion and Resurrection of Jesus by an Eyewitness, which was published in 1919. And it's also fascinating, which gives some of what I said about how Jesus truly didn't die on the cross and what happened to him. So it all collaborated together. And then, of course, as those of us who came along later as students began studying um, at different times, the cycle of what happened with Jesus would come into play. I know I was one that was involved as a Roman soldier at the time of the crucifixion and um, relived my, my part in that, which is really powerful and rather humbling to say the least. So um, it's also amazing to me, just more proof that the higher consciousness of Raphael that was influencing Jesus and Ernest Norman is so enlightened and um, how do I want to say forgiving in the sense of having true compassion with understanding why we did the things that we did because it can see the past if there's no condemnation they are willing to help us and here we're the ones that stop their mission and Murdered them or tried to murder Them and to me that Truly is exemplary of A higher being
2: Oh most certainly So Uh, how much higher can you Get you know to be all loving and all uh, Forgiving and uh, uh, You know to want to help someone who's uh, Harmed you Uh, I have a couple Of questions but i want to go to Paula first To see if she'd like to add anything to uh, uh, What you've said
6: Yes so Also um, during that cycle with jesus and mary uh after jesus left his body and died or ascended to the higher planes mary and john the revelator um together well mostly uriel or mary as she was in that lifetime wrote the book of revelations and because she was a woman and women didn't have the same acceptance as men did john uh To credit and authorship of the book of revelations and celeste talked about how some of us students um were alive during the time of the jesus lifetime and um many of us who are core students um of unarius we are we have negative past lives from that life and other religious lives where we have perpetuated those distortions of the Bible and other religions. And now we're turning around our path by, by giving the truth, learning these teachings and principles, and being a part now of this unarious mission and, and describing what Ernest Norman and um, Uriel left us. So uh, when I first became a student with Unarius, I came from a really religious bias. Even though I hadn't been raised with religion as a kid, um, I eventually got involved with uh, Paramahansa Yogananda's teaching, which is very religious and prayerful, and it has a lot of positive um, principles, and it was a great stepping stone uh for me to prepare me for when I made my contact with Unarius. And when I came to Unarius, I was given a reading, which I very much had an affinity with, um, that I was Salome, um, the dancer uh, and daughter of King Herod and Herodotus, who, um, who requested the head of John the Baptist, so the beheading of John the Baptist. And what's interesting is the reincarnation of him was a colleague of mine before I ever made a contact with Unarius, and he introduced me to Unarius. So, wow. um, so you know, there's a lot of negativity with many of us and religions from, and various religions from our past that we're working out now.
2: And that that's an excellent lead into uh, my first uh, question, just for clarity. Um, and I do know the answer, but um, I think it will inform uh, uh, our listeners. Uh, it was not Jesus's intention to start a faith or a religion. It was his intent to free us from religions that uh, enslaved
7: us. Is that correct? Most definitely, and that, that's why used- he came. He, that's why, as I said, that's why he came to start with. And he he felt his cause would be lost um, as Jesus, as Ernest Norman, if people put him on a pedestal and worshipped him, because we're all part of whatever we call it—the infinite creative intelligence, infinite creator. Some people still use the term God. We're all part of that creator um, because everything is energy and we're energy beings. So, you know, we would be worshiping a part of ourselves, so to speak, um, and we can recognize that spark um, within ourselves that we're developing, that uh, Christ consciousness, that higher self, a superconscious self um, that is not, developed yet, we're, or we would be living here in this earth world, but that's what we're working toward is developing that.
2: Thank you. That was very, very clear and very well said. Paula?
6: Yes, to add to that, that Christ consciousness, um, Ernest Norman talked about <clears throat> the, um, the Christianity ideosophy of the second coming of Christ where Christians um, talk about, and, and he described two versions of uh, where Christ will come, return riding a flaming cloud, surrounded by heavenly hosts, and the earth will be cleansed by fire, and the wicked will be destroyed. And then he described the second version by the second epistle of Peter, where Peter writes, "The Lord returns as a thief in the night, and earth is destroyed." Mm-hmm. And I think part of, uh, and then also he describes the true meaning of Armageddon, but I want to come back to that Christ consciousness. Sure. He said the second coming of Christ means that's when this uh, super Christ consciousness, uh, when we develop that within ourselves and um, through our own evolution and our own um, connection to these higher minds, Uh, which comprise uh, what God is comprised of is these, is millions of people who have evolved beyond the earth plant planes and into many higher uh, spiritual celestial realms. And there are unified consciousness uh, of love and mind and they, uh, their sole purpose is to help, People in the lower dimensions to help us and guide us, and and so when we have that connection with our own God self, that higher self within us through uh, our evolution and progression, then we too can attain that Christ consciousness, and or uh, the Buddha called it Nirvana, and I think the Hindus called it uh, Samadhi. So there's various names for that higher uh, state of consciousness which is the purpose for all people to attain that higher development and alignment with these with the God, cosmic, infinite creative intelligence. So,
2: so the, no the reason difference to go to something with, external. We have that inside ourselves.
7: Yes, yes. And that's what it truly means to um, find the kingdom of heaven within. But You know, Jesus exemplified, as did Ernest Norman, that they had this joining. Um, There's a whole beautiful dissertation that's also voiced out on to listen to uh, the joining between the higher and lower self, and that that's what we're all attaining to. But because um, Jesus, Ernest Norman had that joining, then that's how through that development of that superconscious self, that they could work with these higher beings from the inner worlds uh, that they understood these principles like for example Jesus walking on water that's nothing more than understanding the energy principles and raising his frequency to not be relative um, to the earth plane um, in order to do something like that and uh, the healings that he was able to help people with. Well, he couldn't heal everyone. That was something that was falsely stated to try to make him look supernatural or superhuman. And that's what he was really trying to, as Jesus, to overcome. There was a lot of that supernatural uh, superstition at that time, particularly because there wasn't science like we have now, there wasn't even books for people. To read from Uh, information was passed down. I'm not sure when they started carving on tablets in the Babylonian time. When you know the time period when that relates, but most people things were passed down the form of storytelling, and that's where the Mm -hmm. parables came from. And of course, what happened with that is they got distorted, or people exaggerated them. um, You know, interjected their own uh, personal um, part in the story So there's a wonderful book Called Infinite Perspectives by Ernest Norman And he really Dispels a lot of the Falsities of Christianity But then he also explains Some of the parables And really what the true deeper Scientific meaning in it is And one of my favorites is the Battle of Armageddon which is You know in the biblical sense Supposed to be the phantom Horseman on the hill Uh um, and with with the opposing (laughs) forces of light and they're going to have this battle and actually uh, symbolically it's an individual battle in that the phantom horsemen are really our old self and what is our old self well in studying past life therapy the old self is all the thoughts and emotions that keep coming into our mind that aren't so positive the negative thoughts and emotions from anger and jealousy and hate and all the fears and they manifest as physical illnesses, et cetera, that those are really um, stored in our energy body. They're from all of our past lives and they're something that we have to confront as a battle of Armageddon every single day. And what's wonderful what we've learned with past life therapy is we have tools to work with our consciousness to work with our thoughts and emotions, to not let them override us um, and take us down, but to understand that there's a continuity from the past, why am I feeling like this, and to try to have a more positive attitude to then to be able to build our positive future, because someday we want to live in higher spiritual realms. You can't have negative emotions there. Um, They're a lower frequency. You've got to have the understanding of using your mind uh, with logic and reason. So that's one of my um, favorite parables, so to speak, or prophecies, and then the true understanding and how I can apply it to myself now.
2: You've given an excellent lead into my next question, but before we get to the question, uh, Paula, would you like to uh, add or expand on anything Celeste shared?
6: Just a little bit uh, where Celeste talked about the psychic anatomy. Um, Ernest Norman, uh, in this book that I was reading, Infinite Perspectives today, was talking about um, in Jesus' time, uh, they referred to the Christos, um, which yes. – was an ancient Aramaic language, and he said what really the Christos is is the soul or the psychic anatomy. The psychic anatomy is our energy body that has energies from every life we've ever lived, millions of life experiences, and that through that battle of the, uh, the old self, the negative self from past lives and our progressive spiritual positive self, eventually when we attain that super consciousness when we're in that higher consciousness that becomes our dominant expression um versus the lower expression which most of us express from on this earth with those lower emotions of hate and greed and jealousy but the goal is to um to work towards love and um selflessness and generosity and giving and but loving 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 ourselves and our neighbors and our brothers, um, and he, and he talked about how. And how um, I'm just gonna I'm gonna read the quote that he that I wrote sure. because it's so beautiful. He talks about an international brotherhood, and he says, "Love is the great directive force of God." and agreed by men of all nations, races, and creeds, and that to love mm-hmm. each other would unite man in a common brotherhood. And he said this new philosophy of international brotherhood will gradually be developed and um, that eventually it will express through the hearts and minds of future races of mankind, which will inhabit the earth, which is a really beautiful prospect and goal, something to look forward to. Um to know that that is our future when we're going through so much division and hate and hostility in the times we're in now oh and he says no one can be taught love it comes only through the psychic realization of self and god and the universal unity of all men
2: Thank you. That is indeed uh, very uh, beautiful, and uh, uh, it, it also leads to, to the next uh, couple of questions. Uh, um, the the first question is in the toolkit of uh, Unarius, um, the uh, being attuned to your past life, and then uh, you're g- given an opportunity to resolve. Um, some of the karma, I guess you can call it, with people who um, are interwoven with that particular tapestry. So that's a very great uh, gift. Uh, Can you give an example of like how that would play out in uh, an individual life? And you both brought up uh, like lives where uh, you lived at the time of Jesus and uh, um, how this allowed you certain insights and uh, uh, opportunities uh, to clear. Can you expand on that a little bit more?
7: Well, I guess I will expand more on my past life recognition. Um, often at this time of year, with all the focus on Christmas, which is really just a whole made up holiday because no one understood the true origin of Jesus' birth. So I think it was in the fourth century AD that the Pope uh, kind of brought in this whole story of um, how Jesus was born and in the manger, et cetera, et cetera. And Mary, and and Joseph were actually his foster parents, and that all is explained in that True Life of Jesus book. So I won't go off on that more, but um, I uh, ended up developing a um, severe infection, almost to the point of pneumonia. And um, when I would cough, I just have this really sharp pain in my side. Mm. And what I, what I saw in a flashback as a Roman soldier that I was one as Jesus was uh, supposed to be dragging the cross up the hill of Calvary that um, the soldiers were whipping him with, like, these reeds. And I was one of the people doing that. And so I was getting the feedback of that. You know, the energy I put out then, I didn't understand who he was. I probably made fun of him and thought he was crazy. I didn't understand his teachings and thought I was right in what I was doing, doing my job, you know. And so the negative energy I was putting into that, little did I understand that that negative energy, like a boomerang, was coming back and being stored in my psychic body to recycle later. And as a student, I was being given the opportunity. I was ready, having studied Unarius for a number of years and understood how Uh, past life therapy works to see this past um, and to have remorse with it and a consequential healing not just in a physical sense with the symptoms I had but in a spiritual sense where the energy waveforms are actually um, balanced with my learning we call it polarization so I'm Uh, Recreating my psychic body and the higher beings are definitely working with me at that time because I don't have a developed higher self with projecting these exact opposite bias, uh, positive energy to counteract and um, positively bias this negative energy from this time in my psychic. So I never have to come back and relive this again, but more than that, um, it's changing me as a person. And it's helping me to develop my higher self, um, to move forward in my progressive evolution. And again, uh, as Paula mentioned, all the different ways when you become more enlightened, um, that you're more focused on giving yourself and expressing love and kindness and doing positive deeds, you know, all of those things then can more manifest because you're removing this poison, so to speak, within your own soul.
2: Wow. Thank you, Celeste. Paula, would you care to expand on that?
7: Yeah.
6: Yes. I'd like to share uh, an experience of a healing um, that I had early on with Unarius, but also put it in uh, perspective from one of the statements that J- Jesus said when he was asked about miracles, he said, Of myself I do nothing, but it is the Father within which doeth with all things. And um, when I, before I became a student of Unarius, I was uh, suicidal and was mm. a week away from completing that act. And from the time that I was 15 years old, off and on until I was 26, I had cycles come into play where I wanted to kill myself and um, and a week before the designated date I, ac- I had a heart attack and had a oh. near death experience and I believe, truly believe that um, at the time when I was involved with Yogananda's teachings Yogananda, Paramahansa Yogananda is a brother of Unarius in these higher realms and I think he led me to the doorstep of unarius through my colleague uh who lived that life of john the baptist and i made my contact with uh unarius and um how jesus described those miracles are basically the principle of the past life therapy healing that takes place and he he talks about how the the healing must include preconditioning meaning Before you're born, this healing has already been set into place from these higher worlds. And the cycle comes into play and you catalyze it. And then in conjunction conjunction with your own recognition of the past life and with these higher super astral beings that are working with us and their consciousnesses, uh, their combined consciousnesses that are projected, who project mind energies into our psychic anatomy, the, uh, at the right conjunction of a cycle, the healing takes place, and that negative, aberrated energy is discharged. And, um, and when I came to Unarius, I was given a reading early on about a past life from India that I was reliving, by my, uh, in India where I killed myself, and oh. unknowingly being uh, uh, involved with yogananda's teachings and that hinduism energy to it i was unknowingly attuned reattuned and reliving that negative past life and um i haven't had another suicidal thought since then since i'm so glad um learning the principles of where that suicide came from and how it's a regeneration of other lives where i've killed myself multiple times and And I believe I set it up, that's where the preconditioning comes in, to work that out and other things this lifetime.
2: Thank you for sharing that. That, That's very deep and very personal. Thank you so very much. And I'm glad you found uh, Unarius because you're an awesome person. Um, (laughs) Thank you. And on that note, I looked at the clock. we only have a few more minutes. And I would like uh, for you both to share um, how folks who may be curious about Unarius uh, uh, can discover more about it.
7: Well, um, we have our main main website, unarius.org, www.unarius.org. Um, we have a YouTube channel, which it was Unarius 33. I believe it's been changed to Unarius Academy of Science, where we have a lot of uh, clips from past workshops and talks given at lectures. And these all, some of them focus on past life therapy. Some are on Uh, Tesla technology and free energy, uh, special events that we've had about our positive future. Um, We have Facebook page. Um, We have classes that are offered on Sundays and Wednesdays from 7 to 8.30. We do live stream them and they're archived uh, for several days before the next one airs. Um, that focus on the principles of past life therapy and the nature of consciousness. And Paula watches the classes um, through the live or archive stream. Um, She could maybe talk to that more. And then, of course, on our website, we have um, the whole library of Unarius available for sale. And there's a number of the books that you can also get as audio recordings on CD or MP3. And we have a whole library of Uh, videos, uh, run the gamut on what Unarius is about, available on DVD or MP4. There's a uh, public access website called la36.org, and there's 30 of our videos there that people can watch anytime on demand if you search for Unarius under their public access link. So there's many avenues to learn more about Unarius, and the two books that we mentioned, The True Life of Jesus of Nazareth, um, that is definitely um, a book that many people start with when they're introduced to Unarius, particularly if they've still had a lot of um, beliefs with religion or been um, curious, you know, the bridge between Unarius and Christianity or the religion that they've been involved with. And then Ernest Norman's book, Infinite Prospectus, where he's definitely, um, Paula and I both talked about it, uh, dispelling a lot of what's in the Bible and explaining truly what the teachings of Jesus were. Thank you, Celeste. Paula?
6: Yes, I, I just would like to add briefly that um, it's a great... Uh, tool to watch the streaming for home study students like myself that don't live in that area, and those that library is a wealth of knowledge you 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 can't even spend your life, whole lifetime reading everything and grasping all of it. There's so much information. One of the books uh, today when I was preparing for this, in addition to the infinite perspectives that I was looking through, and I got a lot of those quotes of Jesus' parables was from the infinite concept of cosmic creation. All the books mm. are um, wonderful, uh, helpful, and when you read them, you're tuned into that higher consciousness of the author that wrote it, Ernest Norman, and some of the other brothers that have written some Hershel. of the books. And when you hear their their voices on tape or CD, Uriel or the, Ernest Norman, uh, Ruth Norman, but they carry those frequencies, and it, it lifts your consciousness and it's better than any meditation you could ever do on your own.
2: Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Uh, all you. Um, as always, I enjoyed our conversation and learned very much. And I'm eagerly looking forward to, to next month already. Uh, be well and happy holidays.
7: Thank you. You well, as thank well. Thank you very much. And, and uh, the spirit of the season we definitely believe in, which is one of love. So uh, we wish that for everyone and that is
2: the best possible place uh, to cut to the closing song. Thank you again.
1: Olympian blessings to all who have joined us on our adventure. Now, go forth and create a better world, one filled with light and love. On behalf of the pride of Olympus and her crew, may your journey B joy.